So many owners open their shops with the dream of doing auto repair the right way, being an asset to their community, having free time with their families, and having the ability to create a financial legacy. In reality, so many find themselves working long days, are struggling to find and keep good staff, and can barely pay the bills. Since 2016, the fastest growing automotive repair coaching company, ShopFix Academy's sole purpose is to stop the average small business from destroying the average family. Call 615-645-3683 to speak to someone on their leadership team about seeing if ShopFix Academy is a good fit for your shop. Learn more at shopfixacademy.com. This is Success Leaves Clues, an automotive industry podcast, and I'm your host, Thomas Hayes. All right, this recording was published in May 2023, and if you're listening in the very distant future, let me fill you in that we are in the middle of a nationwide technician shortage. Now, in my observation, there are shops that have fared better than others. And these shops tend to focus on creating a culture and system where techs know they won't have to deal with drama, can make great hours, and have a great career. That's why I'm really excited about our guest today. His name is Phil Quillen, and he's the company foreman for a multi-location auto repair company here in Middle Tennessee. You're going to love this conversation because it gives so many unique perspectives, tactics, and ideas that you can deploy to really change the game in your shop. Want to build your dream team? Then this one's for you. Effective online presence is a critical part of your shop's growth and profitability, which is why it only makes sense to use the company that many top performing repair shops use for managing their online presence, Leads Near Me. Leads Near Me effortlessly increases your car count with a strategic combination of killer websites, high converting Google ads, traffic driving social media posts, and more. Reach them by text or call at 888-953-2379 or visit them online at leadsnearme.com. Leads Near Me, effortlessly increase car count. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thomas. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've actually, you've been on my short list for a long time to have you on the show. Uh, So I think this will be fun. I think so too. Uh, how long have we known each other? It's been a. Has I it believe been like I 10 met years? you at the old Franklin store on uh, on Downs. I believe is where I met you. Oh god, that's the oldest uh, memory I've got of you and I interacting is having a conversation at the old Franklin store yeah. uh, in the shop. I think you were filling in as a service advisor, possibly. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I might have known of you before that, but that's the first time I really remember making a connection with you and uh, finding some common ground and you know, having a conversation. So Yeah. I, I've always loved our conversations. Me as well. You are a smart dude. You got a lot of wisdom. So I, I just, I love hearing your angles on different things. So I'm excited for this man. Uh, for those that don't know you, who are you? What do you do? Well, I'm a, uh, 
I'm the company foreman for Eurofix and Autofix, and I've been with the company since May of 2011. So coming up on 12 years. Um, yeah, it's pretty much the it in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, and so how long have you been, like, what was your progression? You know, you're, you're company foreman now, but what were your different stages? So I started out at 100 Oaks and was hired there as a technician. And before that, I came from a Chevrolet and Cadillac dealer, which was terrible. I was there about a year and it was a very hostile environment. There's a number of issues, but, uh, Luckily, I knew somebody that was hired at Eurofix and he told me about it and told me how great it was and put in a good word for me and uh, got me an interview. And then, so I was a technician at uh, 100 Oaks and worked there. It was initially supposed to be a short-term deal just until they could fit me in at Franklin because that was a lot shorter drive for me. But I ended up staying a lot longer than I expected, which worked out great. I got a lot of experience and worked with some awesome people that I learned a lot from and had a big impact on me. Um, a lot of people that I know today and work with today and continue to have an impact in my life. And um, then eventually I moved to Franklin with uh, Guy Roberts was the manager. And that was another big turning point going there to work and have really been at the Franklin store. Even though we moved physical locations, that's been my, my home base ever since. And yeah, that was, I don't know, maybe 2013 that we moved there or that we moved from there. I don't remember. It all blends together, but, and yeah, I, I transitioned from technician to foreman at the Franklin store with Guy. And uh, so I moved to the new Franklin store as foreman. So, yeah. When did you know you wanted to be a technician or at least be in the field? Uh, well, technician. So I never really chose to work on cars. When I was really, really young, like three, four years old, my dad just dropped me into it. It's, it's what he did. Um, he worked for General Motors and then in his free time restored cars and did body work and mechanical work and things like that. And so as a youngster, that's what I became involved with and just was on that path. And there was never a point in my life that I was like, oh, you know, cars, that's cool. I want to be involved in that. And it's, it's interesting when I interview people, uh, that's part of the conversation. Like, when did you, how did you get into cars? How did you, what brought you here? And it's interesting to hear people talk about that that transition in their life because I never really went through it. It was just never a choice. It was the path that I was put on, which is okay. I've tried to get away from it a couple of times unsuccessfully, which I'm also thankful for, but always been into cars. Do you like cars? I do in a different way than I used to. What does that mean? It's just different. Um, I remember when I was at 100 Oaks, we had a Bentley come in, all right? And I hadn't been there very long. It was a Continental GT, which to me, and even back then was kind of a, not rare, but a pretty high-end car that I thought was cool. I'd never been around. And he was working on it, inspecting it. And I was, I was excited just to be around it, you know? And I'm like, 
what do you think about it? Like, how does it run? It's awesome. It's W12 twin turbo, you know, super expensive. And he just shrugged it off and he's like, tried to, he was a, in a different phase than me and just kind of tried to explain to me that it, that goes away after a while. That it's, I don't see it like that. I don't get that thrill out of it anymore. And I always remember that car and that situation. And I feel like I've kind of gone through that transition as well. I don't know if you'd call it being jaded or just, it's just different. It just kind of evolve in your perspective of things. Like there's still things about cars that I get excited about, uh, but it's not what it used to be. You know, I don't, I don't, when I'm not at work, I don't work on cars. There was definitely a phase where it was, you know, I'm doing side work. I've got a project, but I don't really have as much interest in that anymore. Um, and I, I'll probably return to it someday. There's just other things I'd rather do with my time. I feel like I've kind of scratched that itch per se for now. Cause I've just done it so much. And when so much of my life, it's not been elective. It's not been something that I chose. So I don't really feel like I need that for fulfillment. I, I, my job fulfills that, that need of automotive curiosity, I guess you could say. What's the most fulfilling part of your job? The people. Customers, employees, both? Both, but mostly employees. Uh, you know, the, the whole thing is driven towards customer service and taking care of customers. But my role, I don't directly interact with the customers as much. Um, it's mostly, you know, technicians and GSs and service advisors, obviously. It's, it's mostly internal are my interactions with people. So, yeah. And I really enjoy... Uh, seeing people grow and helping people grow and seeing people uh, take on challenges and overcome those challenges and just helping people out, um, leading people. One thing I'm curious about is, is this term company foreman. Uh, I, I think that, you know, at a certain scale of, of a business, um, that makes sense. And, and I, you know, for a one man shop or I'm sorry, not one man, but a one location shop, you know, the foreman is the company foreman. So for you, what are the differences between a shop foreman and a company foreman? What what do those roles entail for you? Some of the basics are that uh, I'm responsible for providing or sourcing training for everybody. So um, we have, training where everybody gets together and you know, does technical training. I'll source like virtual training for people. Um, I'm also on-call technical assistance. So I've got people calling me all the time. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? What do I do? Just helping people out on the fly. Um, and then I go around and um, try to, what's the word I'm looking for here? enforce systems, but more uh, analyze and guide systems and make sure that people understand them and why we do them and that people are following systems for the most part. Basically ensuring some consistency in our policies and the way that we do things as far as the back of the house and technicians. Um, so that, and one of the examples is just that when a customer goes to this location that they're going to get a similar quote and a similar uh, product is when they go to this other location. So trying to ensure that consistency. Yeah. And then also identifying trends. And it's, it's a great thing as far as 
we have our own little world in one shop where people share things that they see and tips and tricks and things like that. So I'm, I'm fortunate to see a larger cross section. And so I can share some of that information and some of those hard learned lessons that I can maybe help somebody else from having to learn the hard way because I've seen it at this store. I've seen it at that store and that comes up pretty often. Um, and it's really interesting that because different stores get different cross sections of cars and of problems and they come in waves, that's something that you recognize when you're in the shop that you get a wave of certain types of problems and you're always looking for patterns. And so that's kind of what I'm doing on a larger scale is looking for patterns um, and then trying to document those and in an effort to prevent problems. And that's one of the, just from a, evolution of a foreman and their responsibilities perspective overall, that it's, it's a transition from solving problems to preventing problems. And that's one thing that I've seen and I've experienced. And one thing that early on that kind of, I think, makes somebody stand out as a candidate for that foreman role is somebody that is really good at solving problems, which technicians, that's their job. That's what they do. We're in the business of problems, I tell people. Because people sometimes want to panic when, you know, a, a waiter comes in with a problem. And I remind people, we're in the business of problems. You've got to take it in stride. That This is what we signed up for. And that's your value is solving problems. So when the problems stop, your value decreases or doesn't exist anymore. So as far as being the guy that's always solving problems, that has value. But it's limited because otherwise you just become a cleanup crew and you're just cleaning up messes all the time. So the real valuable transition is in identifying the patterns so that you can prevent those problems before they happen, saying what got us here and why do we keep doing this? Why did these, why did these brakes keep squeaking? What parts are we using? There's a million different examples. And uh, so I think that's something I'm looking out for and something that I'm trying to point out to other people and teach other people and kind of, I don't know, spread that mindset. I think that's very interesting this idea of I am, you know, obviously there for technical assistance and diagnostics and things like that, which I think, you know, traditionally that's where people see the foreman and there's a lot of leadership to it as well, which I, I do want to talk about. Um, but I, I love this idea of you're also there to analyze the trends yeah. and affect change. Right. Uh, you mentioned squeaking brakes. Like what are some other you know, types of patterns that you see commonly in a shop that, that you've had to intervene in? Countless. Try to think of some relevant ones. Um, uh, another example would be like plastic valve covers. For so long, we would reseal them, put new gaskets on them, put them back on, and then there's a high frequency of warranting them. They leak again. So now we replace the plastic assembly rather than resealing it. Uh, that's one example. I'm trying to think of some other ones. And so much of what we do is, I mean, you forget about the those organic processes that um, that led us to these habits and policies and procedures that we follow. So it sounds like a lot of it's these technical types of patterns. Yeah. Are there patterns that you see with the staff, policies, procedures, what would be some examples of that? Because I think it would be cool, like if someone's listening, a foreman's listening or a company foreman or an owner, like 
I think it would be really cool for them to start to get some of these ideas if that's not something they've considered of the types of problems that that you're looking for. So I guess another example is the way that we sell certain jobs. Um, there are certain vehicles, specific example, Land Rovers. We started getting a lot of Land Rovers in with uh, coolant like water pump leaking, coolant pipes on the intake leaking, coolant pipe at the back of the engine leaking. And so they come in and, you know, we're, we're also really conscious of being able to justify what we're quoting and recommending to a vehicle where accountability is, is really important. Like if I'm recommending something, I've got a reason. I'm able to articulate why I'm recommending that and being able to provide the value to the customer of why should you give us money for this repair? And so it causes us sometimes to have a really narrow scope of recommendation that this is broken, so this needs to be replaced. But we, we saw a trend that, hey, as soon as I do this water pipe under the intake, it's going to be back within a really short period of time with a water pump leaking. And this is just a really, really high frequency thing that they come in often enough that they need to be sold as a package. Because in the customer's perspective, I was just here for a coolant leak. I paid you this money to fix it. It's not fixed, even though... It's both sides are right, but the customer's not happy that, hey, that wasn't leaking at the time. This was leaking. I can demonstrate to you that this is all your vehicle needed at the time, and that's what we fixed, and it was whole. It was good to go at the time. But again, from the customer's perspective, I paid you to fix a cool, my cooling system, and my cooling system isn't fixed. So that's where now we take a different approach. We try to implement that experience, communicate that to the customer, and say, hey, this is what we see wrong but this is what's going to happen. This is going to be the next step. So we're going to offer you this. You're going to save some labor. You're going to save the inconvenience of coming in and let's get it all taken care of in one, you know, one repair. Uh, same thing with some uh, Audis. They have similar pattern failures with the cooling system. Um, and there's, there's tons of them. And a lot of it's just thinking a few steps ahead. It's, we do this every day. We see the same cars. We see the same problems. There are patterns. And it's asking yourself the honest question of, once I do this, what's going to happen next? And the one that's a little bit more difficult of what's it going to look like from the customer's perspective. And that's something that's difficult as a technician and as somebody that, that is always on the, the car side of it or the back of the house side of it is you have that isolation from the customer's perspective and the customer service part. And that's, you know, that's a divide that's always existed and always will exist that you've got front of the house, back of the house. And there's a, a, I don't know, less of a technical understanding that the front has and vice versa. But I think the more that you can bridge that gap, the better off everybody is and the, the, the happier the customer is going to be. And that's one area too, where I've tried to bridge the gap and, and point out and, and reveal to technicians the the customer's perspective, because like in the case of the, the cooling system where, you know, you try to tell somebody that, hey, the customer's upset because they were just here and just had this cooling system repair done and the technician wants to get defensive. Well, that's what it needed. And I pressure tested it after I was done and it was good to go. I test drove it. It was fine. And they made it, you know, a month, two months, three months, whatever. So, and that's, it's kind of difficult to get them to see sometimes, but you got to look at it from their perspective of, what it looks like to them, um, which I feel like we're kind of on a rabbit trail right now, but that, that I think that has a lot of value. Um, how do you, 
how do you bridge that gap between the front of house and back of house? Because I, you know, I, I I wrote service for a while, and you know, I, I definitely remember like that relationship I had with, you know, the 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 foreman or the technician that I'm working with. It was everything because, you know, I came from outside the industry. I I, I didn't know anything about cars or much about cars, and and so I I remember some of these conversations where it was like, hey even though this is what's broken right now, they need to do this other thing because it's going to fail and I'm already yeah. in there. And so, you know, how do you as, as the foreman or even, you know, from the perspective of a technician really work with that advisor to create that win-win? It's complicated. A lot of it's case by case and it's different with, you know, you've got all these different combinations because you've got multiple advisors, multiple techs and, this advisor is going to work with that tech different, and it's it's complicated. I, I've learned over the years that the cars are the the easier part of the equation in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, they're difficult, and I don't want to take away from what the technicians do at all. Because I mean, absolutely, that I mean that's the product that it's we're selling, core. yeah, right. That's the core of it all. But it's it's more of a I don't know. Static's the wrong word, but the, the people part of it's the more complicated part, more difficult to deal with. What would be some general tips on, you know, if, if I'm a technician listening or I'm an advisor listening, what would be some general tips that you've seen consistently across the board really help that relationship or hurt that relationship? Did you know that some web design companies use the same wording across all their client sites? Unfortunately, this common practice is noted by Google as plagiarism, which will cause your site to be ranked lower. That's why it's critical that whoever makes your shop's website knows better. That's why so many top shops trust Leads Near Me to create and manage their shop's websites. As Google certified partners, they know how to make a top ranking website from an insider's perspective. Get a free site analysis by visiting leadsnearme.com or calling 888-953-2379. Leads Near Me, effortlessly increase car count. So physically crossing over into that person's world, the technician being up front and talking to an advisor and the technician talking to customers um, when appropriate and in a controlled environment, like doing show and sells, I think is a great way for a technician to get a perspective on the the customer um, and learn their, I don't know, just to see it differently. I, I think that's a great one. Bringing the customer back in the shop. And then bringing the service advisor back in the shop and showing it to them. And we do a lot of that. And technicians know that it, this is going to be difficult to explain, which we, we aim for nonverbal communication and making notes, documenting things so that a technician can take a ticket up front, drop it off, leave it, and it's, it's whole, it's complete. That everything that the advisor needs is on that ticket. All the information, all the notes, all the parts, everything. It's a complete package. That's the goal. That doesn't always happen. And we know sometimes that it's, we're going to have to make the notes, but we're going to have to supplement with, I'm going to go get the advisor. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to show this to them so that they can better explain it to the customer. Um, and that, that helps a lot. I mean, it's, it's imperfect, but it's something that everybody has to 
work towards and humility goes a long way too because people get defensive and people think, you know, you don't understand my world. Technicians don't understand that I get yelled at by customers and it sucks. And technicians are, you know, there's, there's definitely that gap there. I think that those are some really good things though. I like this idea of, you know, having each of the sides really enter into the other's world. Yeah. And, you know, being able to, you know, feel enough, uh, to feel comfortable enough for an advisor to go to the back and talk to the tech. And then that tech likewise, you know, feeling customer, I'm sorry, feeling comfortable enough, um, you know, to be able to go, you know, and, and have that, that conversation. Uh, I think that's huge. Yeah. And, and I, I think that sometimes, you know, just, I think just by the nature of how different those two roles are and, and even though their objective is the same, they want to help the customer, how they contribute to that is wildly different. And sometimes I think that they can almost feel opposing Oh yeah, you know, where the customer's like, well, I, I just want to do, you know, the bare minimum and the tech's like trying to advocate for the customer saying, listen, I know that's what he wants, but that's not going to end well for him. Uh, and then there's the pricing and this is the budget and, and so there's a lot of things. So I love the idea of really having those two be on the same page and understand that, you know, we're both after the same goal. And when we're both doing well, you know, and communicating, then we can meet that objective and create win-wins all around. And it is a constant progression. It's a constant, it takes continued effort on both, on everybody's part to communicate. Yeah. And it's not easy. It's difficult. People have bad days. Everybody has bad days, you know, and they, they bring their, their funk to work with them and they've got other things on their mind and they, you know, it's, it's hard. Communication's difficult. And that's, I mean, that's what it's all about. And I've found too that sometimes a, a third person can be a detriment to the communication of two other people because I've, I've been put in a position that this person can't communicate with this person. And so I try to, I try to solve it and be the go-between and, and, but I found ultimately that the, the only real solution is bringing those two people together. Like I can't communicate for you. I can't bridge that gap for you. That's happened to me a couple of times and it's sort of a strange feeling because it, it feels like a failure in a way that, you know, these people are, are they're butting heads and they can't get along and they can't communicate. And I try to you know, I try to coach this person and explain to him that person's perspective and just try to be the one that, that, that pulls them together. But ultimately, if those two people can't, can't face one another and just put their pride aside and commit to communicate with each other, there's nothing that can really fix that. It's ultimately down to the two of them. Um, but I mean, I, I try to help with it and try to coach it. And I feel like that's a lot of what I do is coaching people's communication and um, looking at people's notes that they make and making sure that they make sense, that they're communicating what they need to communicate. It's real easy to get stuck in your own head because you know you've got all this information and you have all this context because you know what's going on. So you really quickly lose sight of what this other person needs from you. And it happens in both directions. You know, when a car comes in uh, and the, the advisor needs to get the customer's concern and that's I say it's simple from the eyes of a technician that I just want the concern. I just need to know what their concern is. But in the advisor's position where they're talking to another human being, 
sometimes it's it's easier said than done. Um, but you know, when you're having a conversation with the customer and they're telling you it's doing this, it's doing that, it's it's kind of easy to get lost. I, I guess I don't know. I don't want to speak for a service advisor. I'm not a service advisor, but it's something that it's conversations that I have that you've got to kind of pull that person into your world and say, you know, I just need to know what their concern is. Are they seeing a light? Are they seeing a fluid on the ground? Like, it's cool that they think that it needs a fuel pump. It's great that the tow truck driver thinks it needs an alternator, but a month from now when they come back and they say it's doing the exact same thing it was doing before, do any of us know what it was doing? Because I can't look at this ticket and say for sure what it was doing. I can just say what their cousin thought that it needed. Maybe some tools that you can use to help people navigate those situations to get the crucial information in same way with technicians, you know, they put information on, on tickets that, you know, an, an advisor doesn't know what this means. The customer doesn't know what this means. Like you have to make enough, you have to gather enough information and document it to, to use for yourself for the future. That's one part of it that if the car comes back, I'm going to need something with enough technical weight and substance that I can, that I can reference. And also for accountability, that if a technician sells diagnostic for something that's complicated, they need to account for what they did to the extent that if it goes wrong and if the car isn't fixed, they're going to have to answer to why they, what they did with that time and why they thought that's what it needed. And, but at the same time, ultimately, the goal is to fix the car and to communicate to the advisor so they can communicate to the customer. And it's got to be understandable enough. Again, it's just about it's bridging those two two worlds and those two sides, which again is imperfect and I'm not the best at, and it's a constant effort and it's just people. Phil, one thing that's clear to me is, you know, you're really establishing this culture in the shop of communication, of clarity, of, you know, the front and back working together and undoubtedly for both sides, you know, that's really creating an environment where people want to work. They, they feel seen, they feel heard. You know, it's, it's not, you know, this unhealthy thing. Uh, I'd be very curious from your perspective, you worked in other shops, you've worked with your current organization for a long time. What are some things that you see that if someone listening is trying to really keep or find great technicians that they can change or do better to prevent this phenomenon of technicians getting burned out of the industry? I mean, my brother, you know, he got burned out of the industry uh, and he worked for a dealer and they screwed him, you know, and, and not to say it's, the, you know, specifically a dealer problem or an independent problem, but uh, so many technicians are leaving the industry for other industries. What is your insight on that from your perspective? I think that one of the, one of the things that burns people out is sense of chaos and lack of organization and predictability that as it, as it is, especially I think in an independent repair shop, there's, it's, it's, there's a lot of different cars, a lot of different brands, a lot of different problems. Like you've got to really be able to think on your feet. I feel like when people don't seize the opportunity to plan for things and control things that are controllable, so like I said before, we're in the business of problems. So I think it's important that 
there are certain things that you can control, certain things that you can plan for. So if you're not controlling those things or not planning for those things, you're reducing your bandwidth to deal with lucrative problems that come in the door because you are causing or allowing these other unnecessary problems to exist, such as scheduling cars to come in and dispatching work. A lot of it revolves around that uh, customer promise times on repairs. That's a lot of it too. So, so there's a scenario, and we used to do this, where we have a schedule. Customers call, put them on the schedule, and then they just exist there until the customer shows up, and then it's a surprise. And everybody acts like it's the first time I've ever heard of it. And customer comes in, checks them in, takes them, take the car and the keys back to the shop. Uh, hey, this car's here. What do we do with it? And it's chaos. And so then at that moment, you're trying to figure out what do we do with this car? Like it's the first time we've ever heard of it or ever seen it. Like we did not have the, the huge luxury and advantage of knowing about it ahead of time on a schedule. So that creates a lot of chaos where somebody's working on a car, they're in their groove, they're trying to get some production done, they're doing an inspection, what have you, and they're getting stopped all the time with this new information. Hey, I got this car. Do you want it? It's a waiter. Of course, they don't want a waiter. If they've got sold work, they're making money, they're in the middle of something. No, they don't want a waiter. Of course, they don't. Nobody does because it's a, unfortunately, you know, waiters are always on that, that list of few people do a waiter with a good attitude, you know, because it's just because it, it forces you to do something on a, on a schedule that you're not in control of because you've got to do it right now. There's urgency that's, that's placed on you that, that you don't choose. And as a technician managing your own workload, you have to, I mean, these, these guys are successful technician is, is really good at managing time. And so you don't like it when somebody comes in and tries to alter your schedule or manage your time for you. And that's kind of what a waiter feels like is that I had my, I have got my own time sorted out and you're going to come wedge this into my day. So all that being said, as opposed to when you have a schedule going ahead and somebody looking at those cars and dispatching them to a technician ahead of time and saying, looking at the technician's workload, looking at the overall shop workload, there's a number of different factors that come into dispatching, but planning ahead of time who that car is going to go to. So that technician can see their workload coming in for the day, know it's coming, they expect it, they can have a bay open for it, it's not disruptive, and the customer gets better service. Because I wouldn't want to be the customer that when I showed up, everybody was trying to pass my car off on them. You know, that's not... That's not great if you think about it from the customer's perspective that, that my car is back there being, you know, rejected by, it's going to go to the, to the whatever. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That, it, that they didn't plan for me to be there, basically. But so that's one thing that I'm really uh, adamant about is using a schedule, uh, putting the right information on the schedule about the car and the customer so that somebody can plan ahead and dispatch those vehicles to technicians. It's going to change throughout the day. It's dynamic. People's workload changes. So it's not set in stone, but just somebody that's thinking that far ahead for everybody's sake, for the customer's sake, for the technician's sake, so, so that when the car shows up, that it can get in the shop, get looked at as soon as possible and get fixed as quickly as possible to speed things up and lessen stress and not be generating problems and taking away from our bandwidth to, to do what we're there to do. And I mean, that continues on throughout the entire process. That's, you know, because you've still got drop-offs and 
somebody needs to actively be managing that workflow because it's not going to manage itself and it's not it's not going to make itself through the shop. It needs to be managed. Workflow needs to be managed. And I've encountered a lot of scenarios and, and been part of scenarios where it's not and it sucks. It's chaotic and it's stressful and it burns out technicians. And that's also sets the stage for the other part, which I mentioned, which is setting customer expectations for repairs and, and completion. That's one thing that is a constant um, pain point for technicians is over-promising their workload. And it's just it just amounts to chaos. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how this plays into flat rate. Because I, I, was, I was buying paint last month, paint our living room. So I go to the paint store and, and I'm, you know, sitting there chatting with the guy, you know, he's, he's mixing my paint, you know, we're getting all these samples and stuff. And uh, he tells me that he was a technician before and he left because, you know, all these different reasons. But one of the reasons was that, you know, flat rate was unfair for him. Yep. And, and so I'm wondering if this chaos and everything's just all over the place if you feel that contributes to people leaving the industry. It comes up in interviews all the time. The past few people I've interviewed, it's, you know, you always want to know, why did you leave? Why are you leaving? Why, why are you severing this relationship with this shop that you've been at? And a really, really common theme is, I, I don't feel like I have a chance. I don't feel like I've got a, a fair chance to make money. And people don't usually frame it as work isn't dispatched properly. But once you sort of, talk them through it, that's usually what it amounts to is that either, um, I mean, two or three people ago, a guy that I interviewed, he was talking about that where I can't turn hours because I've got these jobs, I've got repairs I need to do, but they won't quit giving me more cars. And so they've got to stop me doing this so I can do that. I mean, it's it's really, really common. Um, a guy that I interviewed like uh, two days ago, we'll say Thursday, Tuesday, yeah. He was talking about how uh, work wasn't dispatched efficiently. And he felt like it, I don't know, it impeded his ability or just completely inhibited him from succeeding in a flat rate environment. And as it is, it takes, uh, I think, a lot of courage and gumption and grit to work flat rate. People underestimate that. And I think that as a side note, this is another kind of divide, I think, between the front and the back is that unless you've worked flat rate, I don't think you can ever really wrap your head around it. That it's all on you, 100%. You don't make a dime unless you turn an hour and sign off on it and it doesn't come back. And that's a tall order. That's a big risk. And, you know, I've, I've transitioned people through the hourly to flat rate um, transition and it's scary and people are terrified and it, I mean, it's a scary situation. So I've got, all the respect in the world for people that work flat rate and succeed at it because it's, it's a lot. Um, but it, it has a huge impact on your perspective and how you see things and how you manage your time, how you guard your time, how you interact with people. Um, and it can really, if you're not really conscious about it, it can have a very detrimental effect on your attitude towards people. And I, I think that's the source of a lot of technicians, poor attitude. It, Maybe not a lot. It's part of it that they're not getting paid unless they turn an hour. And so they don't have a lot of patience for somebody 
messing with them or wasting their time or just interfering with that because it's costing them money. And it's, it's a hundred percent. It's, it's different than, you know, if you've got a base pay plus a bonus, it's not that it's just, it's, it's hard to understand unless you've lived it. Talking about dispatching. Mm -hmm. So that's where that's really important is that people are, and they are subjecting themselves to the availability of work because if work, if, if completable work is not available to them, they don't have a chance to get paid and succeed. So it's, it's important. And I feel like it is often not done and at all. And it's just work comes in, it's just going to pile up and it's a free for all. And it causes a lot of conflicts. It's, um, it rewards people that, uh, you know, in that scenario, all the work comes in, it piles up, it's a free for all. It's going to reward the person that's going to go get it. That's the most aggressive. That's throwing the elbows. That's getting in there, taking the work, hoarding the work. It, it just it rewards a lot of, I don't know, not bad behaviors, but it sets up a lot of conflict, and it's not good for efficiency, and it's not good for the customer. And so it's kind of an extreme end of the scenario, but I think that there are varying degrees of that uh, lack of organization and lack of workflow management that are are really at the core of a lot of a lot of issues. Uh, technician burnout being one of them and just inefficiency and just inefficiency in general. Uh, shops that have trouble making money and, and getting, getting things done, getting cars through the shop, getting them fixed. I mean, somebody needs to be managing that workflow actively um, for that to get done. It, it's going to take deliberate action. And that's where, I mean, that's a lot of what the board is about is a physical representation of that workflow through the shop. And that's where that's an important tool yeah. uh, to get that done. But that's, that's why that's such a crucial thing is that it's going to force you. It's not, the thing about the board is uh, it's not the board itself. It's the fact that it's forcing somebody to be involved and to pay attention. You know, I think people kind of miss the point with it. It's like the, the, the value is not in the magnet and the board. The, the value is that it's forcing you by interacting with it and walking up to it. Somebody is, is, is paying attention and being plugged in to the workflow. Um, and I think the default is to not be. Um, and that's not, that doesn't, doesn't yield a good result, in my opinion. When was the last time that you identified or dealt with a burnt-out technician in your role? And I feel like it's a, <laughs> I feel like it's a daily thing. But um, I don't know. I was gonna say keeping people off the edge, you know, like pulling them back from the edge. That sounds a little dramatic, but. And you're constantly managing it. People are always on the threshold of it, especially high performers, man, because high performers will just, they'll burn themselves at. They, they, they will, they'll do it to themselves. Um, I don't know. That, that's not really worded the way that, I don't know. I'll try to word that better, but well, I feel like it's always looming. It's always one of those things that you have to keep at bay. Because in a fast-paced environment where people are accomplishing a lot and stress is high 
and you're always just trying to keep it, keep it under control, keep it at bay and keep your systems in place. Keep it on track because it can go off track and people, and that's why you got to check in with people and do evaluations and do reviews and communicate and talk to people and check in with them and be accessible and be humble so that these people will talk to you and tell you if they have problems, what they're feeling. Cause people will, and people will get burned out and they will go to this place in their mind and they will, there'll be a few steps out the door before you even realize it. And until you go over there and really, really talk to them and really get a hold of them and, and, you know, you'll be surprised, man. I had no idea that you were, you were struggling this hard and that you were going through this and it's uh it's stressful. It's a, fast-paced, stressful, high-stakes environment, and people can really quickly uh, get in the danger zone. And that's where uh, leadership comes in. One of the ways that it comes in to monitor people and communicate with them and know the signs and watch the signs. And yeah, it's it can happen quickly. And before you know it, I've had people, as a failure of my own leadership, I've had people that come up and, hey, uh, I'm giving you my notice. It's just out of nowhere. And it's, it sucks. I can think of a couple specific people that did it to me and I was blown away and it broke my heart and it was my failure to recognize it. And in some ways, not always just my failure. There's other contributing forces that are outside my control. You know, things that I can't, I can't prevent. I can't control other. It's just not for some people. Um, but in those situations where I could have seen it, I could have prevented it. They had a need I didn't fulfill. It was on me and I failed and it sucks and it happens quick and it'll sneak up on you. What did you learn from those? Like what are, what are some of the signs that now you know, okay, when I see this, I need to start asking questions. I don't know that I really look at it like that. I don't, I don't know that there's... If anything, it's don't wait for an indicator to start asking questions. It's just be asking questions, be talking to people all the time. What and, do you ask? Huh? What, what, it, what kind of questions are you asking? How's it going? But really mean it. Hmm. Not just, how's it going? But really, really want to know. I mean, because if you want to keep technicians and you want them to be happy and you want to succeed and you want them to succeed, then you want to know how they're doing. You've got to know how they're doing. So ask them. You'd be surprised what people will tell you if you ask them and if you really listen. Uh, but most people aren't going to volunteer it. Some people will, but people want to know that you care about them and they'll, and they'll do anything for you. If they feel like you care about them and you demonstrate it, people will do a lot for you. And I think that that's fair to care for them. You know, they're there working, uh, making sacrifices, putting in the work, growing. I mean, it's the least you can do as a leader is care about them and check in with them and talk to them and ask them, what do you need, man? Do you have everything that you need? How's it going? What's going on with this? To, to the degree too that it's not weird because there's, if you don't ever do it and you walk up and it's like, hey, what's going on? Why? Why are you asking? And I, that's something that happens with new people with me. When I get, you know, new people on and I do that, they, they're caught off guard. You know, it's like, why are you asking? You know, what's up? What's wrong? You know, but then they get used to it and they know that I'm going to ask. I'm going to come by. I'm going to check in. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how you're doing. 
It's my job. I owe it to you. You know, I need to know how you're doing because if something's going on, man, we need to catch it. We need to prevent it. It's, it's back to the preventing problems because once it's, once that you're, man, I've been in the position where a guy gives us notice and by that time, I don't think I've ever, I don't know that I've ever saved one. I've tried. I've tried really hard to save people that gave their notice. And ultimately it's probably better because that's a, that's a bad way to continue a relationship once they've checked out, you know, and then you get them back. It's, there's always kind of that looming, but yeah, once it's gotten to that point, you already lost, you already missed out on it. So you got to prevent it and keep them from getting there. Um, and that's, that's part two of, of growing as a leader is, I mean, knowing what people need from you by asking them and being able to communicate and being humble enough to ask, you know, cause we kind of get, again, caught in our own head of, I know what this person needs and I know what they need to be doing. And I ask a lot of questions. And even if I think I know the answer, I think that's one uh, good quality of, well, it's a quality that I'm, a quality that its value is increasing for me is just asking questions, listening. Um, man, you can learn a lot from people. But I mean, as far as leadership, that's, again, these people's needs are the ones that, that you're responsible for. So who better to learn those needs from than them? So at the same time, it's not a democracy. So there are certain policies that we agree on, certain procedures that we know are best. You know, so if everybody's like, we need to be able to drink on the job, of course, you know, we're not going to go there. <laughs> it comes up from time to time. You might be surprised to, to hear, but. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's a balance, of course, but. That, that's something that I'm always trying to improve on and it, you know, you can get, it's, it's easier just to stay in your own little world and to not go interact with people. And it's something that I'm not, I'm not naturally good at talking to people and being open and vulnerable to people, but it takes effort for me. But I think that it's, it's valuable. And it's necessary. Um, and it's helped Help me to build a good team of people. I've got a great team. I've got the best team, amazing people. And I've worked really hard to, to help create that team, which sounds, I don't know, sounds like I'm giving myself too much credit because the credit's to them. But I've just, over the years, you know, you've, you fight hard to get certain people, to keep certain people. And then you got to make hard decisions to get rid of some people because you realize that they're a detriment to your team. So another part of it is weeding out bad people, toxic people, protecting your team. Man, protect them. That's how I feel. Because once you've been in a bad environment and had a, you've had those people that are poisonous and toxic, they are hard to get rid of. And they, they put down roots and uh, they sneak up on you too. And before you know it, you're not running things, they're running things. And, uh, so once you get back on the right side of things and you've got a good team and you clean that out, man, you, you mother hen your team and you protect it with your life because once it slips away and once it gets out of control, it's, it is hard to get back, real hard to get back. I've learned that the hard way, the real hard way. <laughs> yeah, I've had some, some, some tough characters over the years, but I've learned from it and, uh, 
I think something to think about is with leadership and with growing a team that the example, that, that you're an example and that leadership by example, I feel like I, I read something recently that it, leadership by example is the only kind of leadership, whether you know it or not. And it's surprising how much people pay attention to what you do and how people are influenced by you. And it's, it's really powerful. And even though, and this is good and bad, you know, people that maybe don't have it, I don't know. Whether or not you realize it, if you're in a leadership position, you're having a tremendous impact on people and a tremendous influence on people. And I think people, it's, it's easy to think that if I'm a good leader, I'm having a good impact on people. But if I'm a bad leader, I'm just not, I'm just not influencing people. But you're having a negative influence on people. That being said, I don't want to dwell on the negative part of it, but if, you, if you're expecting your people to grow and to be better and work hard and try hard, then you have to expect that out of yourself. I don't, think you, I don't think it's fair to expect something out of somebody else that you don't expect out of yourself. And it's, it's difficult or impossible too to lead somebody through something or to a certain level that, that you're also not trying to achieve or, or able to attain, which able is the wrong word. So it's not really about ability. It's just about, it's about the effort and trying and wanting to grow. It's, a, it's one thing too that I, I'm realizing is that, and I'm trying to convey to people, I'm trying to kind of figure out on my, myself, you know, is that growth is not about getting to a certain point. It's about growth. It's no matter where you are, you can grow, you can get better. You never stop. And it's, it's kind of like identifying that, that muscle. It's like a muscle, that muscle of growth and of trying hard and being challenged and being uncomfortable and finding those things that, that make you squirm and make you cringe with fear and intimidation that, that wreck your confidence, that those are the things that will make you grow. That's how you grow is facing those things, finding them, identify them, seek them out, run towards them, do them. And I mean, that's really, if you're, if you're growing, I mean, that's what you're doing with the technician. If you get a GS and you're like, Hey GS, I'm going to start you cleaning floors and cleaning cars. I'm going to work you up into being a, a technician and being flat rate. I mean, that's what you're asking them to do is take on this huge challenge, this massive transformation. And, uh, but even though it's not the same steps or the same growth that you're in at that, that time in your life or your career, it's the same thing. It's still growth. It, it's the same amount of relative effort from whoever's doing whatever. That's a terrible way to say it, but I don't know. I've been trying to, I've been dwelling on that a lot. Um, and I think that's, there's a lot to that. It's just the working that muscle of growth. Um, cause no matter where you are again, you don't ever get there. You're not going to arrive. And I, I think that's a trap people fall into. Also, I see with technicians, young technicians is that they see these, these, these more experienced techs and they kind of have this thought or feeling that, man, he's there, you know, he arrived, he's, he's a master tech, a tech, whatever. It's just like he got over the hump and now he's, he's there. And, uh, I try to tell these people and forewarn them that 
That's not what it's going to be. Like you never arrive. You're always going to be growing, especially in the automotive field because there's always something new. And it's a trap that I see people fall into, the older technicians, that they grow to a certain point and then they plateau because they made it. They reached their goal. But I'm seeing more and more that's what it's all about is that no matter where you're at, you've got to be growing. You've got to be moving forward and willing to take on challenges and not quit, not give up. So, yeah, just something I've been thinking about. I don't have it all figured out by far, not by far. And man, the people that I'm that I'm with, they they humble me with their willingness to take on challenges and the way that they grow and they teach me. I mean, it's two-way street. It's something also. It's not just me leading and guiding them through their job and through life. It's a we're all a team and we all help each other and yeah, we're all growing together. We're just in different phases and different places. Phil, I have one more very important question for you. Hit me with it. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be? Uh, I don't, like I'm moving away from the microphone now. Oop, there we go. Oh boy. You told me not Coming to, in hot. You told me not to do that. <laughs> what kind of a car would I be? Yeah, if Phil was a car. That's complicated. I don't know. That's different than what kind of car do you like? What kind of car would I be? Yeah. I don't know. Do you ask everybody that? Yeah. I thought you listened to the show. Yeah, but I don't remember anybody being asked that. It's always at the end of the episode. Really? What kind of car would you be? I'm trying to buy myself time right now. I'm stalling. Oh, uh, that's a good question. Pun intended. Oh, uh, what kind of car would I be? The tables have turned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, think I would be, and, and, and I'm going to say this and I'm going to like erupt debate possibly, but um, uh, TJ has a really nice truck. And, uh, and I, I think that I would be some sort of a really nice truck. Yeah. Because uh, I, I feel like, you know, I want to carry people where they want to go. I want to be able to, you know, carry a lot of things and, and, and see things through. Uh, so I, I think that's what I would be. I don't know that I could come up with something off the cuff like that. I feel like that, that requires a lot more like analogous self-reflection than I ever really am involved with. I don't, uh, I don't know. You, you strike me as a, like a, like a, a classic. Mm. Cause you're, you've got a lot of wisdom you know, you, you've got, you've got a lot of things established. You're tried and true. So some sort of a classic. I feel like I'd be a grocery getter. Old, reliable. All right. Nothing too flashy. Not a Camry. Not a Camry. Not a Camry. I don't know. I don't, uh, I might have to circle back on that one. All right. I don't know if I could give you an answer. All right. Well, we'll have you on again and, and I want you to think about it. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'd like to do this again. All right, good. I'd yeah. love for you to do it again. Yeah, that's great. That was my interview with Phil Quillen. I want this show to serve and impact as many people in our industry as possible. To help me in that mission, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and tell others about us. If you'd like to contact me, you can reach me at thomas at slcautopodcast.com or call 615-645-3683. 
Thanks. Have a great week.